0: Hello world, welcome to Political Worldview Podcast, May 9th, 2017, the Liberalism Lives in France edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. I'm joined by my usual co-hosts, Christala Yakinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. How are you doing, Christala?
1: I am doing very well, thank you, Adam. How are you doing on this fine, sunny day?
0: Excellent. Cristalla, excellent.
1: Bon, très
0: bon. Bof. and by this is Professor be full Scott of Lucas, these exactly. Of the, 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 the potential is limitless <laughs> for this to run and run. Depends
1: uh, on our vocabulary as to how limitless that's that potential true. is.
0: May have to deep mine uh, mm-hmm. the deep memory, and. As yet not joining in the jocular Frenchisms, uh, Professor Scott Lucas, a professor of international politics and editor of news and commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing,
2: Scott? I'm very chirpy, as always. Without a trace of French. (laughs) Not not, not, not I'm from Alabama. There's no way I'm going (laughs) to try a French accent. It wasn't
0: compulsory on the curriculum.
2: Yeah, Monsieur Jean-Claude, Monsieur Jean-Claude, telephone, merci Madame Martin, j'arrive. And at that point, I blanked out anything else from high school friends.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you're right next to Louisiana, so I thought you might have been able to get a little bit of it um, indirectly. I just
2: simply ate the food in
0: Louisiana. I didn't listen to what they were saying. Well, uh, that sounds like the makings of a tourist board promotion, but let's not probe it too, probe it too far. Our topic today, uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, which is the best I'm going to get in terms of the pronunciation, others are welcome uh, to give it a, a braver push, has been elected as the president of France. Uh, He was elected by the stonking margin of 66.1% to 33.9% against Marine Le Pen of the National Front in the runoff election on Sunday uh, for a five-year term. Parliamentary elections are to follow soon, at which we will find out whether or not the liberal centrist president has managed to assemble an electoral majority uh, to match his personal mandate. A sigh of relief has followed this result around Europe as people persuade themselves for just a moment to suspect that the populist right-wing wave uh, symbolized by Brexit and Donald Trump may, just may, uh, have crested and broken. At the very least, it's nice to know that it's possible to have a popular vote without a terrible doom descending upon the world as its immediate consequence. So... France is everyone's favorite country for today, but how much weight should we put behind this result Uh, and how lasting a change of direction do we think this signifies for not just that nation, or nation, as I believe they call it there, but le monde. So, who's going to kick us off with a starter for five? Scott, if you can overcome your guffaws...
2: At, but, uh, at, at the beautiful French language, I was just admiring all all of that pleasant French coming out from a, you know, with a mixture of an Irish accent here at an English university. Well, I,
0: d- I didn't have the chance to write my introduction properly before I got here, <laughs> so what the listeners got the benefit of there was what uh, what what comes of improvising, which ninety percent of the time involves random French. You know. I think it was
2: a very cosmopolitan introduction. Let me follow up, but all right. It, <laughs> Quite often, uh, we supposedly avert ourselves from the cliff face, but in fact, uh, the mountains are still ahead. Let me explain. That's a very complicated metaphor. Exactly. And I'm deeply curious
0: to know (laughs) where it's going. It sounds like it's off road to me, but if you can bring it back, then I'll be very proud of you.
2: The the headline for this, because we tend to pull everything together in terms of the latest shocks, was of course that because of Trump in uh, the US, because of Brexit Britain, And because of this ongoing sense of crisis over the last few years, economic, social, and political, you know, here's a real tipping point in the sense that if Le Pen wins, or even if she gets, say, a sizable, let's say about 40% of the vote, it's like time to batten down the hatches. And in a way, that's right. If she had come that close to victory, given the fact that her daddy, uh, Jean-Marie, running for the National Front only got 18% in the runoff back in 2002, that's a huge shift. So the immediate thing that we look at is, well, she only got thirty three, and so we've averted a crisis. And I think that's right. The reason why I say it is we've been at the cliff face before. Is, is you know, it for, a cliff face or a mountain? I've, oh, I'm not sure. Well, we're sitting at the cliff face in the one sense, and then we have got to go even higher. The cliff face has been that we faced. We need to bring we're this away from the cliff, cliff face. Scott yeah. is
1: Scott. Scott is, his tolerance for these interventions is growing shorter and shorter, <laughs> I can see. Yeah, I'm, I'm, to on, his left. I'm wondering when he's
0: going to
2: blow. <laughs> right, uh, <laughs> we're moving away from the cliff's edge, dear listener. Away from the cliff's edge.
0: Can you visualize
2: We're that?
1: scaling the cliff edge. That's where you were before I
2: interrupted. Oh, slow down now. All right, I'm getting my heights and my depths confused. We're almost on the edge of an abyss, if I'll try that <laughs> oh, one. God.
0: Whoa. The ground's gone altogether now.
2: Exactly. Because... We're looking at the fact that, for example, we were here a few years ago when the idea was is that Europe was going to break apart economically because we had the crisis that ranged from Greece going across to Italy to Spain, Portugal, across to Ireland. And certainly that was a significant challenge. And although there are still economic problems, the EU has not fallen apart economically. Uh, then we have the shock of Uh, the Brexit vote and what that might entail. And while I think there will be serious damage to this country, I don't think that portends the end of the EU either. Then we got the wild card of Trump in America, and God knows where that goes, but at the moment, look, however mad as a hatter Trump is, and it's pretty bad, that in itself doesn't mean that Europe falls apart. So, what I'm saying is, is that while I'm quite happy that Le Pen was checked at this point. It is probably too sweeping to say, ah, oh, that's the end of populism, which is just a shorthand and a very bad shorthand, which is for a combination of frustrations, anger. Uncertainty <coughs> that has bedeviled a number of European countries, not just the French,
1: and that will continue. And to that will continue,
2: right? Which is why we talk about what looms ahead of us. However, I want to do it in terms of mountains, hills, whatever, and that is abysses. In the French context, we got more elections coming up in a month, mm-hmm. and I mean the and my number of the week, which I'll insert now as a top is that yes, one
0: topic equals a sprinkling of numbers of the week through our conversation, is that, listeners.
2: Is that the number of uh, members of the uh, French Assembly? Uh, between Le Pen's National Front and Emmanuel Macron's En Marche movement is two. You know, National Front, for all the noise about it, only has two members of the Assembly, mm-hmm. and Macron's movement is a new movement. So we're going to get all this replayed in, in, in the forthcoming weeks. Is Despite what is happening in the presidential election, is the swing to the hard right enough that we see a significant number of National Front MPs and now are members of the Assembly? And here's the warning shot they're firing already. Their declaration is, even though Le Pen lost, we've now, we're normalizing. We're becoming part of the acceptable right-wing in French politics. And they're going to keep trying to hammer away that message, which in a way is not only saying, you know, emotionally, we're now part of the mainstream, even though we say we're anti-establishment, but we're going to ally with other parties.
1: Yeah, but that's a global trend, no? I mean, that's a reflection of a global
2: trend. Which is where I'm going here, right? Because... The global and the French intersect here, but the immediate thing to watch out for before pulling Trump in or Brexit or just sweeping things about populism is is given the local circumstances in France because the economic issues don't disappear with this presidential election. The social issues of integration and assimilation don't go away with this. Can the National Front exploit this to go beyond a presidential candidate to be part of the political discussion day in, day out? I mean, that's the immediate challenge there because as we have seen, it's when a hard-right party becomes part of the day-to-day conversation that it becomes really, really poisonous. And the more that they become part of this, then we can see other countries saying, well, what's wrong with, for example, hard-right parties in Eastern Europe? Poland, Hungary come to mind. Austria comes to mind in Central Europe. And, of course, the idea uh, that it, even outside of Europe, that it is normal to be completely xenophobic. It is normal to be completely protectionist with no regard For trade exchanges. So, while again I reiterate, thank goodness that this vote went against Le Pen, um, one vote certainly does not make uh, a campaign, and there will be more to discuss, not only in the context of the next uh, 45 minutes here, but in the weeks and months ahead.
1: You don't think that perhaps the presidential elections will buoy and incentivize in some way a push towards the center and and left? Because, I mean, there there is the argument to be made for momentum, no?
2: You could make the argument for momentum, but you face then the realities of party politics that come into play here. I mean, the reality here is in a way Macron was – although he's created a party, he stood above party. Mm. You know, vote for me. You're not voting for Le Pen. Beyond the National Front, you've got what we might consider a right, center-right group of parties. You then have the Socialist Party and what you might consider center-left. And then you have uh, the parties further to the left, including that of, uh, of Mélenchon, the, the, the communist candidate in this election. Now, once we get into parties fighting against each other, that call for unity dissipates real quick. Mm. And in a system where you're talking about various types of proportional representation... You can get very complex right. results that come out of this. So I, I think the political realities are going to hit home. Right. What I would be looking for is that the message beyond parties trying to get their vote still is the same. that says, look, we'd like you to vote for us, but there is a wider message, even though we're going into voting for the assembly, which is still is we are ruling out this move to the hard right. We do not want to go there, um, You know, I hope that. It's just a question of whether that plays out in the next few weeks.
0: Mm. Well, I, I, at the risk of repeating what what I said in the introduction, I'd like to take a moment to uh, revel in the simple pleasure that comes from a democratic vote taking place without it leaving the taste in my mouth that democracy uh, may not be uh, all that I thought and hoped that that it was. Uh, You know, it's nice to know that forces other than those that appeal to the basest instincts of nationalism and fear uh, are capable of mounting a successful election campaign but uh, that's clearly going to dissipate pretty fast among the real problems that that, that France has to deal with uh, when it comes to looking to the future i can imagine i can see a fork of possibilities in the road like one lesson i can imagine drawing from this is that It is very, very difficult to make these kind of right-wing nationalist populist breakthroughs from outside of one of the major established uh, political parties. That Donald Trump managed to get himself elected because the Republican Party's rules allowed him to hijack their nomination and then a series of incentives meant that a lot of people who would not, fit the category of a Trump voter under any other circumstance rallied behind him as the Republican candidate. The Brexit vote kind of cut across party lines to produce a a kind of uh, populist right-wing movement that fractured the Labour Party and empowered uh, the Conservative Party in the end. But UKIP, the UK Independence Party, the party that was notionally the uh, insurgent movement in the party political system, was never going to take over the system before the vote and seems to be going absolutely nowhere right now. So I can tell myself that the story here is that the, the National Front is just too tainted by association with a certain kind of virulent extremism to get above a certain cap in terms of its support. When it becomes... A binary choice between it and and something else. The pessimist in me then thinks, well, Emmanuel Macron has been elected to run a country that still has a lot of the problems that it had before. There is still a great deal of resentment around uh, immigration. There is still a Uh, relatively high uh, unemployment rate in certain sectors of the population. Rightly or wrongly, there is still a strong narrative about economic stagnation. There's been some economists backing and forthing about just how good or bad really the underlying French economy is. But, you know, it's got some economic problems, etc. Emmanuel Macron, having arrived newly on the scene as the, the shiny young Avatar onto which all hopes for progress and uh, uh, and whatnot can be can be projected, became very very popular in a very short period of time. Uh, it is possible if you do that to become very unpopular in a very short period of time. Let's not forget he's replacing a president who decided not to run again because his approval ratings in the opinion polls went to four uh, percent. That is just. By, by the standards of any country I ever paid close attention to, almost unimaginably terrible. So it is clearly possible for someone and, and Macron is effectively a socialist candidate really, like he had been in the cabinet of François Hollande, the, the outgoing socialist president. Uh, he was not uh, able to get the nomination of the Socialist Party, but the person who did wasn't someone behind whom the Socialist Party could unite with any enthusiasm, and Macron ended up getting the, the support of a lot of the establishment of the Socialist the Socialist uh, uh, Party. So he's going to try and govern from the moderate center-left, one would think, and therefore it would seem eminently possible that faced with the same challenges that have just undone one moderate center-left president, uh, at least moderate by French standards, he may find himself... Uh, similarly whacked by the realities of getting anything done in the French political system and his popularity may suffer. So maybe Marine Le Pen or whoever else becomes the the uh, representative of the Front National is going to be waiting to reap the benefit of that with uh, with more success next time round. Uh, I, I, I can be optimistic or pessimistic about how it goes depending on what moment of the day it is.
2: Let me throw in a couple more things because um, despite... The note of caution at start. I I do think there are grounds for looking on an upside here. The first is the Russians have been checked, and I'm going to be very very forthright about this because it did come out just before the vote, and it should be explicitly said that the Russians were meddling seriously in the French election because they've been buoyed by what they were able to do in the U.S.
0: Well, this is that there was it was announced that there had been a major hack of Emmanuel Macron's. Uh, electoral machines emails and that had been dumped in an online location and then uh, the Macron campaign said that that had been sprinkled with false documents as well as real ones. It happened right before a yeah. shutdown of legal press coverage yeah. of potentially election-shaping events in France, so it didn't get quite the same play it might have done yeah. elsewhere. But it was still a pretty big deal in the international media, right? Yeah. And, uh, and the suspicion is that the Russians, in the same way as they did this to Hillary Clinton in in the United States, did it to him.
2: Yeah, and, and on the specific case, there is evidence that identifies, there's a specific name who's been identified as the person responsible for this who has links to the Kremlin, but it's not just that immediate hack, as they did with the US election, and as they've tried to do with the German election, which is coming up, of course, that the Russians put a massive state propaganda effort into trying to destabilize any opposition to uh, to Le Pen. They did it to Francois Fillon, conservative candidate, who came a cropper for various reasons, and then they did it to Macron. Um, so this is sort of a poke in an eye to those Russian influence operations. We'll see how that pans out. But I think the wider point is that I think there's a difference here between France versus Britain and the U.S. And I want to see how this plays out. And that is, someone once explained it to me this way, that, that in France, in the schools, they talk about the European project. And in the media, they talk about the European project. Well, quite clearly in the U.S., they don't talk about the European project and from all I know about this, it will be a quixotic campaign. Uh, yeah, to exactly, the President, your but, belief
0: in the European
2: project. Yeah, but my understanding here is is that in uh, the UK schools as well, it's equally quixotic to talk about the European project as well, despite being a member of the EU. Now, it strikes me that while this vote, in large part, is about French issues, is that at least part of it, given Macron's vibrant defense of the European project. Is about that as well.
1: The European project as a peace project? It's that European project?
2: Everything. So if, when Macron made his statement, for example, challenging the British over Brexit, which we may talk about in a couple of minutes, he went back and referred to the origins of what has become the EU as in, we came out of 1945, we came out of World War II, we did not want to repeat this. And to do this, you have to act politically, economically, socially, culturally, and that you can't turn inward, which of course is Le Pen's message I mean, throughout. you know, mm. France for France and everyone else can go to hell, basically. Now, that defense of the European project, that belief in the European project, is probably the biggest issue beyond France itself that I'm looking at, mm. is that you still believe, is the collective of Europe something worth defending, something worth fighting for at this point with all the strains upon it? And let me just add one piece of evidence beyond France. Which I've noted, in recent weeks, after some doom and gloom about her future, uh, Angela Merkel is doing quite well in the German polls in the run-up to their election. Now, we know that polls can shift. But what's interesting about the latest polls is is that the German far-right anti-European party, AFD, is down at around 8% right now, which is quite low given the amount of you know, thunder and lightning they were trying to rally.
1: When are the German elections?
2: The German elections, I believe, come up in September, and I'm looking for people mm-hmm. to try to confirm that for me. So we've still got a few months to run. Um, but at this point, it looks like that Merkel's projection as being you know, stability for this European project is actually the, the dominant message right now in terms of German political culture, as opposed to the other messages that we've talked about.
0: Mm. And it seems like the... Uh the the, the the National Front, the Front National, if I'm going to go for the French pronunciation again, why not, um, has responded, as many political parties do, to defeat by turning in on itself uh, with acrimony. Uh, the, the, strategic, the, the two strategic decisions that seem to have been made by Marine Le Pen when she displaced her father and decided to make a serious go of mainstreaming it as a party that could compete in national elections – uh, with a realistic prospect of success, one was to try and buy into a statist, welfareist agenda to suggest that it could resolve uh, the grievances, the economic grievances of the native population through interventionist measures, and the other was to turn against the EU uh, and to uh, bang the drum uh, for. Some, if not, if not immediate French exit, then at least steps that would clearly carry it in in that direction. There now appears to be uh, an analysis, a post mortem analysis for this campaign from those who have an interest in finding something to hold against the current leadership, which is saying those were strategic mistakes. Uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen. Uh, himself is kind of the ghost of the feast still hanging around. Uh, Apparently, his granddaughter uh, is a member of the party who is, given that it seems to be some kind of family-run concern, uh, considered to be the future and is also uh, leaning into this narrative. So it may be that in their efforts to rebuild and move on, Uh, the anti-EU part of the platform and or the economic populist part of the platform is what uh, goes out the window. I mean, there's two ways you could look at that, of course. You could say that Marine Le Pen has done remarkably well to get this many votes for what is essentially a fringe, rabid nationalist party and that those two steps carried them closer to success. Uh, And therefore, if they turn back towards the agenda her father had, whoever the figurehead is, they'll get the... Whipping that, that he did. Uh, or you could say that uh, um, that those were errors because they lost and therefore a change is worth a go. But uh, there is at the very least the prospect that simply fighting out the wisdom of one or other of those courses enervates the party, that they, they spend so much time fighting with each other about the wisdom of their strategy, it kills their electoral chances.
1: And what's interesting to me, I think, to bring it back is this broader question of what it means for Project Europe. And and how that flows on through Germany and and kind of in the time of break, British negotiations for Brexit, because as I think Scott pointed out right at the beginning of this, it doesn't Le Pen's defeat doesn't mean an end of populism, um, despite how excited EU various EU commissioners are getting about this. Mm. So I wonder also what needs to be done uh, in pro kind of European parties to to shore up that front because they're, they're they're running scared and they're also afraid of how to shape themselves. the The idea of being kind of pro union, aside from the French election, and maybe the French election reshapes the narrative, but the idea of being pro EU has fallen very much out of fashion. So I wonder whether it will give some kind of momentum to this.
2: Well, I, I mean, let me make a couple points coming back to both of you. And so, I mean, in terms of, first of all, the, the danger mm. and then trying to find the positive. Out of it, I wonder if the danger is not as much that the National Front come into the mainstream takeover as much as that, for example, uh, the right wing of French politics uh, moves into the National Front's territory. Mm. Let me explain. What Someone made the very astute observation that the way this tends to work is is that it's the established parties that actually take over the ground that the French parties have. So, for example, um, again, to use Britain and the U.S., in Britain, the Conservatives have effectively taken over the ground of UKIP. They are almost as hard-line as UKIP on the mm. position of Brexit. Now. In a sense,
0: in a sense having, been, having been forced by the referendum yeah. results into uniting behind what was the signature policy position of Brexit, the Conservative Party has you know, resolved the one thing that stopped them from... Yeah. For, for making a bid for that territory. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah. And in a sense, the territory that Trump has staked out or that Trump and the Tea Party have staked out, sometimes in a very incoherent way, but that the Republican Party will be pulled in towards that territory, uh, as we've seen with some of the messages or, you know, through this very hardline approach to health care recently and possibly towards immigration. Now, in the French case, therefore, it was if Francois Fillon had won hypothetically versus Le Pen, would Fion have become more hard-line on immigration, more hard-line versus the rest of Europe? That's been averted for now, mm. but we stress for now, which brings us then to Cristalla's point, which is a very good one. This is just a personal opinion by someone who is from outside the EU, but it strikes me that you've got to get back and connect up with people, first of all, at a local level, which is what are they concerned about? They're concerned about housing. They're concerned about education. They're concerned about health care. They're concerned about their communities. Concerned mm-hmm. about foreigners. Right. They may be concerned about foreigners, but quite often they're quite concerned in a mythical way or sometimes a real way about how foreigners and immigrants disrupt those services. Mm-hmm. We've mm-hmm. seen that happen in Britain. Well, and
1: how they disrupt, I mean, to to put it on the table also, how they disrupt identity. Yeah.
2: Right. Okay, but services and identity can be closely connected. Uh, right? Community
1: and identity. And community and
2: identity. Can be... So, and, and that's what's been very destabilizing here. Now, in France as well, you talk about, for example, up in the north of the country, which is where the, ne- the Front National had its highest vote, a lot of economic dislocation, a lot of dislocation of services up there. Mm-hmm. Now, that means at a local level, you've got to have governments that are responsible at taking it upon themselves and say, look, we've got to deal with these issues in a systematic way rather than shifting the blame to Europe, which has happened here. But I think it also means the EU taking cognizance of these issues in the sense that they have been seen as detached from this. It's the Brussels bureaucrats who don't know about our lives. They don't know about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And rather than being seen as an EU of regulations, an EU of organizations, it needs to be an EU with a message this isn't just a national message, that this is an EU that is committed to economic stability, progress, economic security.
1: This is what needs to happen. I'm not sure that those EU figures have the wherewithal to be able to craft that message. Mm. And and I worry that they will see this election as kind of letting themselves off the hook.
2: Well, and, and that's the challenge. And what I'm saying is that if you're listening to us, EU commissioners, I mean, go back to the start of forgive me, the historian of me coming out, go back to the start of politicians like Jean Monnet, like Robert Schuman, going back to coming out of World War II. When they talked about rebuilding Europe, they also talked mm. about rebuilding Europe as one for social security, right? Uh, talk about it at a time when you Britain came in belatedly mm. into the EU in the 1970s, that that should have been the message that came out of this country. It never really crystallized. Yeah, never really but it did.
1: didn't. I mean, to deviate towards Britain, it never did because Britain, I firmly believe Britain doesn't see itself as part of anything. It sees itself as leading because of its imperialist, imperialist legacy. I don't know that it can yet see itself as a partner in a larger project.
2: And I agree. But the big failing in this country, and I don't want to say we'll get back to France, but the big failing in this country, which I think distinguishes it from these, is that we have the myth here about, all right, we had the welfare state. Mm. We had the move for Social Security at the end of World War II. Can you think of a politician who connected that up in a with a European context? Labor never made that connection. Mm. And so what we're seeing right now, for example, is that Jeremy Corbyn is gonna get you know, he's gonna get basically uh, whipped in the general election. Because he hasn't connected up the idea that you can talk beyond Brexit Mm. to saying there should be a European vision and not this whole idea of, oh, it's only a British question whether we do something about the rich versus the poor.
0: Hmm. I do, uh, to focus on the British dimension for a moment, uh, I worry that if this is a time-limited populist wave, if it's a sort of fever that you know, having jolted, no, there's metaphors We're is also doing the so rails. many metaphors yeah. today. Yeah, If it's a fever that's uh, um, given a scare to the neoliberal technocratic... Body uh, of uh, the are, populace. Are, yeah, are they center left? Yes. Uh, who were utterly complacent about the fact that these dark forces would only ever be fringe. Then, you know, the... Uh, high level of vote these populists have achieved without winning electoral success in some European countries will uh, promote a kind of renewal of the, uh, the normal tendency, as I might call it. In the United States, perhaps the optimistic scenario would be that Donald Trump ultimately Uh, being not particularly popular as a president, having only ever had minority support and become president through the quirks of the electoral system and the oddities of the unpopularity of his opponent. He, at the end of four years, may be displaced and replaced by by, by somebody else. Britain is the only one that during the course of this period has made an irrevocable decision that kind of screws it in the long run. That now that that vote to leave the EU exists... It's knock-on consequences for party politics such that the Conservative Party will never in a million years support reversing that decision, and the Labour Party is going to be hung, drawn, and quartered in its uh, the impossible task of, of responding to it. it. means that Britain's the one country that can't just move back onto the road, uh, as it were, mm. uh, once all this is over, because it's done something... At the height of the fever, it's made a decision It's cut its <laughs> to legs do off. Some, yeah, to do something that can't be that can't be taken back. Uh, whereas everybody else just like bit down on something and held tight and waited for it to <laughs> waited for it to break. Uh, you know, don't make any bold decisions. So I'm a little uh, I'm a little sad for Britain because I fear that it may be uh, it may be less easy to take to reverse course uh, on the road it's set off down
2: than, than in any other instance I, I like that idea you know because we're feeling feverish so we'll cut our legs off which is summarizes what's here but let me bring it back to France and to Europe I wonder if there is a paradox in the move in Britain that is affected for example the perception on the continent and that is you know, at the time, those who favored Brexit said, oh, yeah, we'll provide a model. You know, Britain will come out and others will follow us. And I think it might be the reverse, that I think others will look at Britain and say, look, we really don't want to go that way for very practical reasons. Uh, and how whether that played any role in the French elections, I don't know. And maybe Trump
0: has played that role as well, like, I, a, like give, giving people a horrifying I think so. moment to go, oh, wait a minute, these people aren't just— like a, a symbolic protest against irritating, complacent, smug liberal metropolitan technocrats, they can actually win, and they're terrible and incompetent and
1: virulently nationalist. Do you think that, that though that's reached the Trump the Trump horror has reached the kind of popular level of voters? Well, internationally. well let, me, let me give you internationally.
2: Let me give you an experience, and I'll see if Adam can chime in because I, I've been in uh, in Dublin for each of the past. Uh, two weekends. Adam was there as well last weekend at a conference. And what I found in Ireland was quite interesting in that as they're reacting to Brexit in Europe, there was this, and taking into account it's Dublin, not the rest of the country, but in Dublin, it's like this look at Britain, like, you know, geez, what the hell's going on over there, right? You know, I can't quite believe that they made the leap. And the flip side of this was that was what was interesting is that there are Irish people I'm talking to who were so pleased that when they were named in the EU's response, to Britain, right, when Britain said, we're leaving, Fine. And the EU letter, which said, all right, we'll negotiate, said, you know, we note that Ireland has overcome its problems, specifically named Ireland, and that mm-hmm. it has done so without leaving Europe, and it's now uh, come out of, I think, the darkest economic days. And so there was that sense that you don't have to cut your legs off if you're feeling a bit feverish, as it was in Ireland. There may be ways of dealing with this. It doesn't matter that they aren't still... You know, skeptical of the European bureaucracy, and they have their issues about it. But at least from that Irish sense, and I do wonder if this is the sense in other countries, which is, the idea, "Look, we really need to talk about reforming things here, not making, as Adam put it, very, very well, the irrevocable step, Which the nat- Which the National Front would represent in France in many ways. Well, Cristallo, we talk
0: a lot. On this podcast... Uh, Generally. Uh, 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 yes. As <laughs> we, is the purpose we, we, of a podcast. We talk, in, we talk a lot as a rule, but one of the things about which we talk a lot is a situation in Turkey where we have this um, descent, apparently um, unstoppable at this point, into one-party rule and possibly even one-person rule uh, based on... Uh, kind of mainlining uh, of aggressively populist tendencies. Is, Is that something that is specific to the place that it happened and for any good, solid structural reason could not happen in the countries of Western Europe? Or is that Like a warning about how easy it is for relatively liberal and democratic institutions to go completely off the rails if everybody doesn't keep a firm eye on them. Like, are we seeing here the robustness of Western European liberal democracy and the uh, fragility of it in the further east we go? Or is it ...too complacent to think that, and basically it's a warning about what is possible anywhere, anytime.
1: I think that the answer to that, as a good academic, Adam, I think that the answer to that is complicated... And well, sits, we've got we've got lots of time for <laughs> complication here. It's one thing we love and sit somewhere Break between and sit somewhere between your two. I haven't come up with any metaphors today. You know, your forks in the road and Scott's mountains, and I'm really struggling here to find a, yeah. a Turkey related metaphor. Um, I think that what is happening in Turkey is a, a combination over a decade or so of a series of events that are specific to the region and the pressures on the region that might be felt differently maybe in Western Europe. And I'm talking about, you know, this this courting of the European Union that, that the party did and then the kind of feeling of rejection and the, the whole kind of psychological series of issues of wanting to be and wanting not to be part of Europe and Europe's rejection and enticing or or courting of Turkey together with, over time, the the change in Turkey's perception of where it sits as a regional and as a global power and that coalesced with Iraq and Syria and a whole spectrum of unfortunate um, global events and all of those factors came together to, at, with domestic turkish um political factors and the the large scale personality of of personality politics and authoritarianist tendencies of tayyip erdogan to to end up where turkey is right and that is not to say that that is not possible in western europe but it was a convergence of a series of factors that could have been checked over the last decade, that, ha- that were in some ways checked by the EU. in the early years of this last decade, or slowed down, but the, but the EU took a series of different approaches, um, which, by turning the other way, um, sped up a series of tendencies that coalesced with with regional um, emergencies. And so the pressures in Western Europe are going to, toward that will that will push Western European countries towards populism slash authoritarianism in that descent. Are slightly different in that the fears are different and the push and pull factors are different. Mm-hmm. The fear of the other is very real here, and the fear that the other is taking away our rights and our privileges and undermining our identity as native whatever brit brits or french or wh- however you want to frame that are other are other are other are the factors that are going to trigger more populist mm. uh, leaning leaders but i don't know that it can happen as quickly i don't know that it can happen as quickly or maybe i mean maybe we're halfway down that road i don't know what i do think is that we're
2: gone no, i'm just wondering if following out if is if Turkey had come into the EU whether that would have limited that move to autocracy by Erdogan No it EU. was
1: limiting it was this is a thing mm. that really pisses me off it was limiting Turkey's move towards autocracy you know the human rights standards were changing mm. um, media laws were changing there were several things that European integration policies did really well for Turkey and the, the the carrot worked,
2: but so in other words, while they may have, and I I share this, I think there were missteps in the way they handled Turkey, very much by appearing to shut the door. Yes, yeah. and I think I
1: mean, and and I'm a Cypriot, and yeah. Cyprus played a big role in that kind of opportunistic turning Turkey away, and that is not to say that the that that the that the AKP was in good faith, and mm. I'm conscious that we've moved this to Turkey instead of to France well, but we're the, talking about the, the fate of liberalism of, in general
0: yeah. france is merely the uh, the the good news story i suppose for today of I, the victory of you know these liberal centrist tendencies that i guess well, folks like us are probably likely to sympathise with at the expense of these other forces that you know people have not that long ago, we had a whole podcast wondering if there would be a wave all the way across Europe of this kind of thing.
1: What Scott's pointing to, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that certain the, the benefits of the European Union are that certain legislative frameworks are in place to protect a quick descent, at least a mm-hmm. quick descent, right?
0: Yeah, and if we're learning anything in the current time, it's that. Institutions are important. Yeah. Like the more fail safes you have to slow down
1: yeah.
0: movement in the wrong direction, the more um the more hope you have that it will stop before you get all the way to yeah. the edge of the precipice.
1: Yeah. And I think to to continue well done with the continuation <laughs> yes. of that. We are back to the precipice. <laughs> I think the thing that uh The thing that resonates with me out of all of this conversation is is this idea of what Europe was to begin with. And if we reduce it to its kind of most basic element, it was to protect against the, the sliding back into war again. Right, mm. and so You're what like, war is
0: bad, and nationalism, which causes <laughs> wars, is bad, and, and let's, let's find ways to stop that happening. Na- yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. And so that was the beginning of the project, and that is that remains the heart of the mm. project. And I think what we've forgotten is how easy it is globally for us to revert to war, and how actually, mm. in large swaths of the world, th- this is this is where we are right now. And so I think that. I think that this return to the, the basic principles of the European Union, however hard that might be, is what we need to kind of reorient ourselves towards.
0: And isn't that one of the things that's most annoying? I think it is certainly about those who are uh, sympathetic to these parties. You know, your um, at least the thinking ones, the mm. ones who, you know, can give you a, a narrative of why, say, voting UKIP is is a perfectly respectable thing to do or whatever. Like it's that they treat it as um, uh, both hysterical and tacitly a slandering of them to suggest that empowering these kinds of movements does materially carry us back closer to the yeah. possibility of... Um, conflict in in, in Europe, as as if, um, you know, because they they imply, of course, it'll be fine. Like, we're all so far past that, that we don't even need to think about the possibility of that kind of conflict. And raising it as a specter is just a smear against respectable, civilized, national identity oriented politics. Whereas I think what we would agree is that once you open that door, terrifyingly quickly, uh, you know, small C conservatives who think they're straddling that divide between the the terrifying nationalist right and the and, and the center can be totally overrun by the forces they've unleashed.
2: I agree with that doomly <laughs> assessment, but I I just want to second Kristola's call. I think that that envisaging being able to articulate and then act upon what it, a notion of social democracy. Which isn't just bound up with an individual community or even country, but that we all have a stake in this. That's the way forward. But of course, we're saying this as academics sitting up here on the mirror yeah, tower. and the question
1: is how? How do you communicate that right. that very message and the idea that the the door that Adam doesn't want to open—that's a you know that the slide into into whatever what did what did you call it? The,
0: nothing good. Was something, yeah. The
1: slide into nothing good, <laughs> Voldemort's world. Right, but like you know,
0: at the end of the day. At the risk of pulling out the the uh, the big card that no one wants to pull out in these discussions like Adolf Hitler didn 't end up being Adolf Hitler just because everybody loved him and Nazis. He got where he did because a uh, a sufficient number of conservative types uh, were sufficiently complacent about their ability to tap into the forces he represented and control it within institutions that benefited them uh, to think that you could play with this fire, uh, and it ended up burning the whole house down. And you know, treating that as though it's like some historically never-before-never-again uh, event just seems wildly complacent to me. Even if no one's going to be precisely Hitler, uh, they could at the very least be Mussolini, and that's pretty bad too, you know? Well
2: let 's uh, avoid Hitler, and I think i 'll just close for my part with the message you know liberty, equality, fraternity, <laughs> young bad things to to hang on to these days yeah do you do you want to
0: give us a number of the week, Christelle, or do you have one so so on the on close? the
1: subject of uh liberty, equality fraternity what I have seen um, my number of the week is is um, twenty two which is the number of times I have seen Brigitte Trogneur, um Cited as Who is the, the wife
0: of Emmanuel Macron.
1: Yes, thank you very much for that. Cited as today's uh, version of the French courtesan, the woman behind the power, uh, the man in power in French politics. Some version of this kind of story. And one actually went to the lengths to detail her as uh, the latest in this historical list of women courtesans, uh, including Ma- Madame de Pompadour.
0: Isn't courtesan a pejorative term, if I'm not mistaken? Yes, yes it is. Like, I don't feel like if I knew a woman, French or otherwise, uh, I would throw that word around to describe her without taking my life in my hands.
1: 2017 French political uh, context, and we have the wife of the president elect of France um, being discussed for her age, for her ability to uh, perhaps use sexual powers, uh but in this really weird way many of these articles are talking about because she's older, right? Mm-hmm. So how do we frame older women who we don't see as sexualized as also being, you know, this woman who has this power over this man that is mysterious who is also blah 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 blah. So it has bemused There are rumors me. that he is blah 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 blah. Oh sure. my goodness. There are rumours about there are so many rumours. Another of these um twenty two articles give or take another thousand that that didn't pop up on my feed uh was i don't know if you guys caught it the the oedipal article about how uh le pen has killed her father for power and how um macron married his mother for power. It
0: sounds like whoever wrote this article may be overthinking it slightly, but nevertheless, so it's, a a, it's a bold space-filling gambit in whatever publication <laughs> they work for.
1: You know, the, the feminist in me wants to construct a complex argument pointing out all of the ways in which the portrayal of this woman, this particular human being, is on so many fronts ridiculous and wrong and a terrible reflection of where we are as a society. But really, the, the, the most of the other parts of me are just tired of hearing conversations about women who are attached to men in politics as the, the handbag, whether she is the older handbag, the younger handbag, the woman behind the power, the whatever. Hmm. I'm so tired of it.
0: Women are not bags <laughs> uh, and should not be described in that way. I'm going to um, be a little drier. Uh, I guess in my uh, in in my number of the week just before we wrap up, which is eight, uh, which is the uh, polling error uh, in the final round of the French election, which is to say, uh, a 32 percentage point uh, victory was uh, the actual result um, for uh, the presidential election, uh, whereas 24 percent margin of victory was what was predicted in the polls. Now. Uh, As Nate Silver has pointed out on 538, that is larger than the polling error by some distance for both the U.S. presidential election and uh, for the Brexit referendum. However, because it was in the same direction uh, as the ultimate winner... Everybody is completely indifferent to it. No one is hammering the pollsters for being wrong doesn 't matter at all. His point would be that if you have polls showing a relatively close result and you get a relatively close result the wrong way that 's actually better <laughs> in, as, as a purely uh, functional and statistical uh, um, point uh, than is this kind of margin but It is basically, and even though he does it for a living, he seems to tacitly admit this, impossible to get the public to think about the polls in any way more intelligent than if they don't say who's going to win right, they are worthless. Uh, Whereas if they have massive numerical gaps between the margins of victory they predict and the outcome, so long as they get the result right, it's fine and dandy. Uh, and for that reason, I would like to play a small violin uh, for uh, for pollsters uh, who have been hammered in the United States uh, and the United Kingdom, uh, having to bear witness to this tidal wave of global indifference to an error on the part of the widely praised French pollsters after they got the first round uh, so close to the the truth.
1: But only a small violin.
0: Yes, I I don't think I can spare the large one uh, for professional pollsters. That would be a bit much. Anyway, I think we've set the world to rights. Um, You can find us on Twitter, at Poll World View, and follow us and get uh, links to the program. You could also like our, Facebook, like our Facebook page, if I can enunciate that correctly. All this French has tired my mouth out. Um, www.facebook.com forward slash poll worldview. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud and share us on social media or give us a star rating or leave us a review, etc. We have been Kristalia Kinthu. Where can people find you on social media, Chris? They
1: can find me on at at Twitter you at, at, at Twitter. At Twitter
0: on Yakinthu On
1: on on Twitter at Yakinthu at Yakinthu at oh, now I'm just confused. Y A K I N T H O U.
0: Well spelled. Thank
1: at, you. I've had a lot Scott. of practice as I tell you every week. It's good I've
0: good to got to get a phrase. new joke. Yeah, you're gonna have to workshop that
1: <laughs> yeah. some more.
2: I, I you can find me at Political Worldviews Partner the News and Analysis website, and now video site, EA Worldview, and uh, eaworldview.com, or on Twitter at ScottLucas underscore EA.
0: Colonizing the online media space one medium at a time. Uh, I'm Adam Quinn. You can find me on Facebook. Uh, I'm Adam Quinn161 by the numbers, uh, and uh, you can recognize me as standing next to Lyndon Johnson in black and white in my picture. I'm also on Twitter, at Adam James Quinn, uh, but I don't use that quite so often, so I'd recommend Facebook if I were you and keen to do that. We'll be back soon. We very much hope you will be too. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and we will see you next time. Goodbye.
1: Au revoir. Adieu.